0: Welcome to Peace of No Mind. My name is Raymond Tanner and this is the podcast where I'll be interviewing amazing individuals as I find out what a peace of mind means to them and some of the valuable lessons they've learned throughout their journey. Each episode has been recorded at a different stage throughout lockdown, pandemic, just overall COVID living. If you like this podcast make sure to hit me up, subscribe, send it to a colleague, send it to a friend, just send it on. And follow me on socials at Piece of No Mind Show on Instagram and Piece of No Mind on Twitter. Anywho, it's been a minute. Welcome to Peace of No Mind, Georgina. Thank you very much for having me. No,
1: it's it's been a long time coming. Super, super long time coming. Um, I feel like we always talk about me coming on your show, but now we've actually done it. But it's a funny time to be doing it. But I'm happy to be here.
0: I know. <laughs> I know. See, this is the weird thing. I've had to just like adapt and work out like, you know what, this can still work, no matter even if we are isolated and we're not face to face.
1: No, definitely. I feel like there's no reason why audio producers and podcasters can't continue entertaining us and giving us all the content we need because we can Damn, just do it like this and geez.
0: it's fine giving us all the content we need yes and this is what <laughs> no we pressure. need no no but this is
1: what we need man no this is what the people need yeah. you and me making content
0: together <laughs> the people That's have spoken they're clearly yeah. this. they do um i was gonna say like i was um so i was actually going to allow you to introduce yourself um but mm. I think it's probably better that I give you an introduction that I found on the internet. Okay, I'm really excited. Okay, cool. And this might <laughs> not do you justice, but hopefully this is aligned with who and where you are and what you're doing. So, okay, go on then. Okay, so we would like to welcome... Georgina Lawton, who is a 20-something writer, travel addict and good eyebrow enthusiast who originally yeah. hails from London. She's a former Guardian columnist and has also written for all held positions at Geldham, Time Out London, The Indie, The Times, Vice, Marie Claire, Elite Daily and others to add to an amazing
1: list. Boom! Wait. Where'd you get that from? <laughs> Jeez, come on. Hey, hey, hey. Where did you get that from? I can't remember if I wrote that. Ether.
0: I don't so, I don't think you did write it. I think I think it's just out in the ether. You know, when you just make out makes, in the ether. When you make such a big impact in life, like people
1: start writing those things for you. Like oh stop. Mad. Stop. I'm sure I wrote that for some newspaper at some point, but thank you. Well guess what? It's stuck.
0: And the, the only part I was a bit the only part I was a bit confused about is um I didn't have you down as a good eyebrow enthusiast. What what, what does that mean? Yeah, but do you know. <laughs> you know what you're not a woman,
1: and when I do my eyebrows well, I get girls asking me, Oh, you've got HD brows, have you got them tattooed? No, I haven't. I've just got a really steady hand and a skillful eye, oh, man. and I just really like good eyebrows. And I just, when they're done and they haven't been done for let's say months. <laughs> Sick. Um, I like it when other people compliment me on them. And also, like, those bios are dry. You need to put something a little bit personal in them. <laughs> and, like, how, how
0: have you been for, like, the last few days? What, what, what have you been up to?
1: Um, so I've been isolating in my house where I grew up in Sutton. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been quite nice to be back home. My mum's here, my brother's here. And as you know now, Jasper's also here. is my <laughs> new dog, for anyone that doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> got a dog called Jasper and I adopted him at the start of lockdown. Like literally I knew we were going to go into lockdown and I was like, right, this is the time to get a dog. But also, as you know, I always moan about the solitary style of my, my life because I'm a writer and um, I'm a freelance writer. So I just find it really lonely all the time being on my own writing. It's not a social job and I'm quite a social person. So a dog has really helped with that aspect of things because it gets you out, it gets you going, gets you exercising. So it's been a nice few days, but... Um, yeah, Jasper ran off on my first night here in Sutton, and, and then he injured himself. So
0: <laughs> see that—that that is what is wild. And like, just just for some of the peace of the mind, listeners, like, just could you give the briefest explanation? Like, because you only arrived like the other day, right? You only got home the other yeah. day. Yeah.
1: So I've been in Brixton, which is which is my house share, and he has been fine in Brixton um, because I've I've built up his confidence and I've got used to. He lived in Brixton. He's Rockle had Park. to have
0: his confidence built up. He
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: you knows. Listen, are you mad? Um, anywhere in london like like, yo i live in brixton i know how to function like yeah
1: (laughs) because he's a he's a a shy dog he's a timid dog and they said to me he's not going to be good in inner city areas because i live right next to brockwell park it's actually kind of the best of both worlds and i haven't taken him down to the madness of like brixton market or the high street so he's kind of had his confidence built up, living in Brixton, and then I come to Sutton, new area, and it's very quiet here, so there's no cars on the road, and the first night I took him out, he got spooked because I dropped the, the plastic handle of the lead on the floor as I was walking him at like 9pm, and the noise made him jump, and then when he jumped, the lead sort of clattered again, and then with every move that he made, the lead kept clattering, and he got so spooked, he ran off like a cheetah into the dead of the Matt. night. Completely silent road in Sutton. I was screaming like Jasper yes, didn't come back because he was so spooked. And his lead snapped off. We found that halfway up the road. And then um, yeah, I was out with my brother and my mum looking for him for hours. Like I was hysterical at this point. Mm. And then we found him on a dog watch group for sutton like someone had found him the next day and posted like i've just found this greyhound and then people reunited him with me but i had to take him to the vet and he had to get his paws all patched up because they were all all the skin on the bottom of them was ripped off Mm. um so now he's recovering and recuperating next to me in my room in sutton and he's feeling sorry for himself but at the same time i feel bad because i just feel like you know, that's my baby. I've had him for like six weeks and I messed it up by dropping this uh, lead. I was
0: beside myself. Listen, it's, I honestly, honestly, back. and we, we briefly spoke. I was like, I don't think you should take that burden. Um, and I had to briefly just remind I know, you, but... I was like to, if you don't know, Georgina um, adopted a greyhound and I was like, if any dog in its life is, knows how like the running world should exist and knows how to like, <laughs> knows how to outpace society, it would be a greyhound. And I was just like, yo, like, I honestly couldn't, don't be so hard
1: on yourself. It just done what it does. It just lives, it lives <laughs> like so. To mean- you said to me, it was really funny, you were like, it's been genetically bred to outrun a human, so yeah, don't feel too hard on yourself.
0: Be so hard, like, what on earth? Of course, that, that, the dog's gone, it's gone. Like, and obviously I'm glad that he's back, like, because I can't even imagine how the night would have been not knowing he was back. Oh my
1: God, we went to bed crying, me and my mum were crying. I couldn't sleep, but then by the next morning I'd woken up and thank God for these really active Facebook groups. Because they'd already found him and they'd already worked out that it was my dog because I posted on one before I went to bed. Mm-hmm. So by the morning, he was like, you know, reunited with me. It was amazing. It's just now he's a little bit injured. So Mad. I'm just going to help him recuperate whilst I'm in my house here.
0: <laughs> so we'll dedicate this episode to Jasper. Um, to Jasper, to Jasper. And all the dogs in lockdown.
1: <laughs> <laughs> having a hard time. Yes. We're having a good time because they might get loads of attention right now, which so- apparently...
0: What's going on? Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, but listen, I'm um, again, like I said, really happy to have you on today. Um, Thank you. What I want to do is something I ask kind of all the guests that come on: is mm. um, what does a peace of mind mean to you, and how is it best achieved?
1: Mm, I like this question, and uh, I did remember that you asked guests this. Like, I think I was trying to sort of run down in my mind in the shower the other day what I would answer. Oh man, so I'm going to try and recall what I what I had in my shower thoughts. Uh-huh peace of mind to me is feeling at home in yourself and feeling at peace with who you are and knowing that the version of you that you see in the mirror matches up with the version that other people have of you so who you think you are matches up with the way that others view you and there's that complete cohesion in in who you are to the world and the version of yourself that you present to the outside world and I think because I've done a lot of writing about identity and about like how we're seen and how people see us and how that makes us who we are. That's that's my version of having peace of mind, like being secure enough in your identity that wherever you are in the world, no matter where you go, no matter who you meet, you'll always have that sense of home within within you. So it doesn't matter what people think of you or what projections they put onto you. If you found home within yourself, if you found peace of mind and security and confidence within yourself you will always feel at peace mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what i wanted to finish on that bit there there we go
0: <laughs> look that shower speech that shower speech definitely came that in show- that, <laughs> <laughs> those shower talks <laughs> definitely came through for you man i'm sorry i'm it. i could hear it i could hear it Ooh. completely oh man no no honestly that was beautiful that was beautiful you're talking about the alignment of the way that you your actual external self
1: is and your internal um bringing them into one right Mhm. and that's not always possible for everybody but I think if you can achieve that then then you can have peace of mind mm. basically and the way to achieve that is is very very varied depending on you know where you are in the world what sort of upbringing you've had but you know for me it's involved a lot of traveling some therapy mm. um and a lot of sort of reconciling negative thoughts I had about myself and just putting them to bed and just sort of working on my own self-confidence and my own um my own view of myself. So the way that I view myself hopefully matches up with how others now view me. Yeah. Not all the time, because there'll be some people that think you're a dickhead and you think you're great, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way of the world, man. You can't please it's them all. You like, can't, you please, can't everybody, please everybody. Them yeah. More. Um but what what was actually weird is how we've probably first met, like, because I've known you since we were like 18, right? Yeah. So funny. And I met you at a house party, right. I met you at a house party at um at my uni. At your university. So obviously I, I met you, I spoke to you. Um we could say, yeah, so we took a picture together because there's still evidence of our interaction. Um, yeah. um then um... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell the people, tell right, the people. Cool. No, so, you I saved I you saved yourself in my phone.
0: Okay, as, so as do you wanna say it? I can't remember what I saved myself in the phone as. Right, I
1: still have it to this day. What did, I haven't changed nothing in I, ten years. Every time you call or text me, it comes up with Ray Dada. You saved yourself. <laughs> you saved yourself.
0: Is that in my phone? Man, Okay, cool. So moving on swiftly. Well, <laughs> we then? not no, 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 no. But then it was one of those where I was working at uh, another place and you actually came in for an interview. And I remember just thinking, like, I recognise her. Like, where where was it that I recognised? This was a good few years later as well. So there was no reason why... Yeah, yeah.
1: It was like our first proper jobs. Yeah. After, well, it was my first proper big job after my internships. Yeah. And, and it was, you were already there, weren't you? Yeah.
0: So I was already there. And um, instantly, like, I think after we'd, after we'd finished interviewing you, um, something came to mind and it linked the party and linked it all together. So I messaged um, my friend and I was like, do you know Georgina Lawton? And... He was like, yeah. Did you
1: remember me straight away from the party?
0: No, I just knew I'd seen your face before. But um, kind of between that, like between the time that I met you, um, there was probably a lot that kind of went on in your
1: life at that time, right? Yeah, I think by the time I started working with you, it, it was still kind of, it was still ongoing, but it, it was starting to calm down. I'd say by the time me and you finished at that job, and that was, I left that job in 2019, you left in 2018, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you want to tell listeners kind of what sort of experiences you might have had at the earlier stages um, and then kind of how that helped mould you?
1: Mm, Yeah so um, when we met at 19 I remember looking at those pictures that you found of you and me and I've got like this straight sort of weave and it's highlighted and it doesn't look terrible but that was maybe what do you mean? You the were like, final form. You
0: messaged me the other day when I sent you the picture. You're like, I look buff, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I look good. I look good. But like I had so much going on that I just couldn't see myself the way that maybe some other people saw me. And I look back at those pictures now and I was like, oh, God, I was so hard on myself because I was so judgmental of my own appearance. and I so wasn't happy in my own skin. But when I look at myself, I see someone that was like, you know, like a normal a normal 19-year-old girl. But you wouldn't have, I guess if you met me then, you wouldn't have known that I was struggling still with my identity quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But when I look at those pictures, I'm like, God, you were so hard on yourself. You were fine. You were gorgeous, but you just didn't really know who you were. And that's like most 19-year-olds, I think, like anyone who's who's gone to university or had sort of big life changes between, you know, teenage years and first job, which is most of us, will know what it's like to kind of have those existential moments where you're like, oh, what am I doing with my life? Who am I? But on top of the kind of normal... Um, adolescent anxieties I would say there was quite a lot of other stuff going on related to my racial identity related to my heritage related to my family and yeah it was a lot it was a lot to kind of deal with Um, so when we met you wouldn't have known that but it was kind of just about to start and I think my last year of uni my dad got diagnosed with cancer and that was kind of the catalyst for all these changes in my life and all these kind of strange things coming coming to light and just to give people a bit of background like i grew up in normal kind of normal i grew normal, up in a suburban quiet house the one that i'm in now in sutton normally yeah. was normal like nuclear normal? family i grew up in this nuclear, nuclear family, family yeah like mom dad brother and it's where i am now and it's somewhere that you know will always be home to me growing up in sutton it was like a stable home a home with lots of routine a home with lots of homework help and um you know sunday roasts all that kind of stuff so that, when i say normal that's what i mean it was like a lower kind of middle class stable home so my family is all white and i was growing up in a very white area sutton is about 80% white which matches the rest of the uk and obviously when you met me and anyone that googles me afterwards will see that i'm i'm not white um I didn't know why I wasn't white, so that was the layer of anxiety and pain that used to kind of follow me everywhere. I'd go on holiday, and people would be like, oh, you adopted, and I'd be like, no, not that I know of, those are my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother, who is blue-eyed and really pale, and my mum is green-eyed, loves the tan, but she's Irish, so she doesn't naturally <laughs> tan, and then my dad's very white, blue eyes as well, and then there's me, mixed race, not not light-skinned, curly hair, dark features, dark eyes. You know, I am black and everyone around me is white, so I stand out even more because of that thing. Can you remember one
0: of the the earlier memories that you, you realised you might have not looked like the rest of the family?
1: Yeah, so like most children I've researched, you have racial conceptualisation at about four or five, and that was the same for me. Like, I remember being five in the playground and saying to somebody something about my skin because I remember her replying if you want to be white scratch yourself white like me and I remember doing that next to her and her doing that with me and you know when you scratch dark skin you kind of get that dusty look for about half a second yeah and then it goes back to normal and I remember saying oh but it doesn't last and she was like oh "Oh." so at five I was aware that I didn't like anybody else and I was aware that I wanted to be like everyone else I wanted to be white but I couldn't understand why no answers had kind of come with this conundrum so I remember being aware of it And there were moments like that that would happen all the time. Like I'd go to Ireland because we went to Ireland every summer. My mum's Irish. And, you know, most of the time as a child, I would forget that I wasn't white because I was never having those conversations with my family that would explain why I was black. I would go to my parents and they would say, oh, maybe you're a genetic throwback. And this is the story that got repeated again and again as I got older. I'd say to people, oh, I'm one in a million. I'm a genetic throwback. You know, my mum said that I could have inherited my looks from xyz or a spanish ancestor or portuguese ancestor because my mum is from the west coast of ireland so you and ended of... up
0: parroting and almost repeating what you were told um as, mm, as a justification what
1: you were told yeah, yeah as a justification and that was a way that um i guess protected all of us by talking about this story at the heart of our family that didn't make sense giving it a narrative somehow made it made make sense mm-hmm. so i had this story that my parents would say "Oh, you're definitely ours but you might be a genetic throwback. and You could have got your looks from, you know, a distant ancestor who was Spanish or Portuguese. And I'd be like, okay, that's fine. That's the story. That's that's enough. So that stopped you from questioning as well, right? It, well, it didn't stop me, but like, it's, it's hard to describe. It wasn't at the forefront of my mind all the time as a child because I was a child and I didn't know any better, but also because I had a stable family environment. And I realized that every time I asked these questions, there was slight kind of tension from my parents where it'd be like, Oh, we don't want to talk about that. So, kind of, let's shut her up as quickly as possible and repeat this genetic throwback thing. So, that would be kind of sensed as I got older, I could sense that it wasn't quite right. But as a child, you don't want to disrupt your family and you don't want you to be the reason that something goes wrong. So I would ask. But as I got older, I would ask less frequently. And most of the time growing up in a white household where we don't talk about race, we don't talk about why I look different. I could kind of put it to the back of my mind because there was so much love and so much support and so much um, that was good about my life. that I could kind of put it to the back of my mind until I went into the outside world or we went on holiday or someone at the post office asked me something or someone called me. Um, a paki which happened once and i was so confused i was like what is a pa- like what does that mean does that mean mm. i'm from pakistan like what is that what i look like am i am i indian so i used to think all the time when these little things happened maybe it doesn't make sense but then i would go home and the story would be kind of glossed over and then we just get back to normal so that was my normal so on one hand i've got this like amazingly stable silky soft lovely upbringing and then every so often something sharp and awful will disrupt that and it will kind of bring me back down to earth. And it was kind of a way of always not knowing. It was kind of a thing of always not knowing, I guess, what what my life was supposed to be. Was it supposed to be with all these people of colour who would always point out, oh, you're black or you're mixed race or you're Indian or you're this or that. Was, that. was that my life? Or was my life supposed to be with my family here in Sutton where we don't talk about race? I couldn't reconcile the two and I didn't really know where I belonged. And that would kind of pop up every few months or so when someone would remind me, this story doesn't make sense this does not make sense. And then I'd get really defensive and I'd get really upset and I'd come back. My parents would say, no, it does make sense. It's fine.
0: And then you found that this built together with like teenage angst ended up like impacting your teenagers Mm. quite heavily.
1: Mm. Yeah, everybody. I went to an all girls school and it was a lovely school. And like I have so many great friends from that school. And it wasn't the typical girl girls school where it's very bitchy and there's a lot of competition for boys. Or I mean, I'm sure that happened. But in my friendship group, we all got on really well and we all still do get on really well. Um, and there was never sort of any kind of competition or any put downs from anyone. But even still, I had such a great group of friends. I still felt like, oh, my God, I'm the only person that looks like this in my friendship group. because All my friends are white. There's still that anxiety just as a teenager of standing out where everybody else looks one way and you look another way. I know that it's a universal experience to feel like the odd one out but that's not a criticism of your relationships or a negative analysis of those relationships like all those relationships with the people in my life that i love that have been really positive are still really positive and i don't remember ever having like put downs or um sort of like direct competition with my mates growing up it wasn't like that i had enough support and you know positive affirmations that i knew that i was valued i got good grades i had great friends Um, I had a dad that was like absolutely obsessed with me like I had all these great things but the anxiety of not knowing where I belonged and if there was kind of like a lie at the heart of my family or if one of my parents was related to me or both of them were lying to me or if I was adopted or if I was uh, Pakistani or if I was Jamaican or if I was mixed race that had a huge impact on sort of how I viewed myself and how I interacted with other people so there were black girls at my school and I was so I think looking back unable to make like fully formed relationships with people that looked like me because I was so afraid that it would kind of pull me away from from my family and I didn't want to be that person that disrupted this this this, this perfectly oh, intact family yeah. mm. so even when i did venture into sort of south london proper south london as you would say um <laughs> at like 17 18 we'd go to clap and go to brixton like people would be hitting on me that wouldn't be hitting on my friends and i'd be like oh it's because i don't look like my friends like i'm not white so all these guys that aren't white too are hitting on me and that would be a, such a big reminder such a big slap in the face that like you're part of a different sort of beauty paradigm like you're never going to be able to get your hair like your friends you're never going to be able to um you know tan in the same way as them because you're already black you need to kind of like wake up and realize that you exist in in a slightly different realm to your mum and your your friends and every time that happened i wouldn't want it and i'd be so reluctant to allow myself to have these fully formed relationships with other people that look like me because i had a lot of unlearning of of i guess internalized um internalised anti-blackness to unlearn. Yeah, but then also you'd never had a confirmation.
0: I'd never had confirmation, so I didn't know what I was aware of. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you weren't going to just start chilling with the black girls because you you assumed (laughs) that, do you know what I mean? It runs a bit deeper than that. Um, So yeah, you can imagine. So a lot of conflict um, because- Just a lot of conflict, yeah. yeah,
1: A lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I didn't, I couldn't name it back then. I couldn't name it. Um, I just, you know, that's your normal for a while. It's only looking back and having spoken to, to other people about it, I'm like, God, yeah, I was a lot more defensive and I was a lot more uncertain of who I was. But also in a weird way, I was kind of cushioned from the reality of dealing with the worst parts of race because my parents would constantly tell me, you don't need to worry about that. You're not black. You don't need to talk about these things. No one told me you need to work twice as hard. Nobody told me you might need to worry about being judged because X, Y, Z. So I went in there mega confident with schoolwork and and goals and you know, in a way it was a blessing because I never had to think about that. But at the same time, I was completely ill-equipped for a hierarchical racialized world. Yeah. I was completely ill-equipped for a world that views people of color as inferior because I did not view myself as that yeah. for but so that, long. Like that, that
0: somewhat kind of played um, to your advantage, that kind of confidence. Uh, yeah,
1: no, it is, is, is it has helped. It, it's a tricky one because it, That's one way of looking at it, but Mm -hmm. to raise a child colorblind when they are dealing with the racialized impact of having a color, having, you know, a racial identity, it does leave them a little bit high and dry when it comes to dealing with those situations that most of my now, most black people I know and most people of color know how to just deal with as second nature. Like it took a long time for me to be able to kind of assert myself in situations where race was at play. I didn't know how to do that. So, so long. Um... And I remember there were lots of times I just looked stupid, obviously, because this story did not make sense. But I was being asked by my family to carry it on my own. So all the times that people would say to me, are you adopted? And I'd say no. And they'd say, you know, you must be. And I would cut them off because if they were too pushy, I would think, how dare they challenge the story that my mum and dad have told me. I would, I would lose friendships or potential friendships, potentially new friendships because of that. And I remember there was one time at school where my teacher pulled me up in front of the whole class and she was like oh you put yourself down on the school system as white and I was like I didn't do that because obviously I'm a child I didn't fill out those those forms when I was younger and she was like no I can see that you know you're down on the school system as white why is that and the whole class stopped doing what they were doing everyone was listening it was in the middle of a politics test and I had to explain to my teacher that I didn't know I didn't know my background I didn't know my ethnicity I didn't know why my parents had put me down on the system like that and um, everyone was listening my best friend was listening and like other girls in my class who i'd known since i was 11 black girls who kind of just accepted the story like everyone around me just accepted it once they knew me they were like oh that's Georgina with the white parents okay cool yeah. but like new people and new teachers and people that would be kind of coming across this information for the first time would always have the reaction of what the hell this is this is bullshit and my teacher had obviously never come across it before and she pulled me in front of the whole class and i had to be like i don't know and she kept going and going and, going. and i was like i don't know miss i don't know and she's like maybe you were adopted you know maybe you were switched at birth do you think your parents are lying to you Gosh, that's really strange, isn't so what it? What did Maybe. she do all of this mid-putters? Mid like, Hold on. Hold, Hold right on. on. Yeah. Like, oh. And it's something that I've written about since in detail, lots of detail. And um, at the time I was really angry, but I went home and my parents didn't really, they were angry that she challenged me, but it still didn't solve the mystery of why are these people constantly asking me to qualify my appearance in the presence of, you know, my white family? Does this not mean that this story doesn't make sense? And we couldn't ever have honest conversations about it. It was always a case of, oh how dare someone challenge you but we never got to the heart of why and this went on for my whole life up until i was 21
0: so at the time i would have met you at 18 there would have still been you, yeah you would, you would have, have met had me at that stage was...
1: yeah yeah you probably did ask me what's your mix or do you know you what know, where, I, prob- I probably
0: i probably did that i probably wasn't being too forceful because obviously at the party i would have seen you and i would have just growing up in London and having like, when I say like, mm. just, I, I would have just encountered so many different races, religions and um, cultures mm. that I would have just seen you. I was like, Oh, she's probably mixed race. Probably one of her parents, mm. is like Irish other parent might be from somewhere in Africa <laughs> Jamaica or Caribbean. Something. That's something. Caribbean. Those are <laughs> yeah. like, like, you could have been anything. There's so many. Exactly. Habits. But yeah, I think um, so at 18, you still wouldn't have known them. No. Yeah. Mm. When you met
1: me, I would have been in that kind of, I would like, when I look back at the picture, like, I've got a, a weave and my hair straight. Because I was so, so desperate with my hair to fit in. And hair, obviously, is such a big marker of racial identity. And at the time, I was just kind of dealing with it on my own. It's not that my parents didn't try. Like, I remember my mum taking me into Croydon to get my hair done. So taking me to two salons where they were black hairstylists when I was like 10 or 11... And I remember when I got my weave, if I wanted more hair added to it, my dad would like sew in the hair on the kitchen table. I'd be like, oh, dad, can you sew me in another track? And he'd be like, oh, don't want to do this, Georgina, but he would do it anyway. And these are like, you know, white parents that have never grown up with, with black children around them. Like my dad grew up in Shropshire, which is like near Wales. My mum grew up in Ireland in the country. There was no blackness there. And suddenly they have this black child and they did the best that they could. And they, you know, they took care of me as best they could, but there was no kind of extra research of How are we gonna deal with this child's hair? It was like, oh, let's just do it as if I do my own hair. So my mum would just plait it and there was no oil, there was no shea butter, like we were an oilless, creamless house. Like it was It's not funny. It's it's no, but it's yeah, it's one of those. But all those things that you think you take for granted having other, um, I guess, black caregivers around you, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any of that, but that that was my normal, so I didn't feel like I missed out as such. It was just, it was a way of you know, life, we may do. Yeah. yeah, it was it a way wasn't of like life. You
0: weren't like... at a loss by not having, like, cocoa butter on demand. Like, you didn't think you were, at least. Do you it know
1: was... what? My mum actually was a big moisturiser. She got me into cocoa butter, and I think just, I don't know, Irish people, they're pretty... They're pretty up on the moisturising. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, but yeah, it's it's, it's those it's those um, those kind of smaller things that a lot of people overlook um, that have been ingrained even more as a, a cultural thing.
1: Exactly, but it was just, it was what it was. And like, it was just a part of my life and all my friends would get on board and they would always defend me as well. Because all the people that had known me, I went to the same primary school in Karsholton, which is next to Sutton. And then I went to the same secondary school and I had a lot of the same friends. And then, you know, they all got introduced to the story when I was like seven. So when you're seven, as a child, you just believe what adults tell you. Yeah. My parents told me that they were my parents. I told my friends. They told their parents. God knows what their parents were thinking. But at seven and eight, you just believe what your your family tells you. And that has such a hold on you. That has such power. It's, it's more powerful than like, you know, church doctrine or learning facts in history like what you're told as a child you take a child's mind and they can have you you can have them for life yeah because you but you see your Your
0: caregiver is right like these are people who are meant to always kind of guide you based on so you just kind of look at an adult as though they know absolutely everything the same with teachers as well so especially if they're your primary caregiver you would never question those stories
1: of course and you they set this this standard for your life like if they tell you the sky is blue you believe that the sky is blue and it's the same with race and identity if my parents told me you are related to us and i believed them i just didn't have the tools to work out how how to dismantle that story when i was a child so it just went on went on for a long long time and then when i met you at 1918 I might have just been able to kind of say to other people of colour, oh, yeah, I think I'm mixed race, but I'm not really sure what I'm mixed with. And it was always still embarrassing. So at that stage, I was still all over the place. If I was in a presence of people that asked me, I would maybe say that and say I might be mixed, but I'm not sure what I'm mixed with or my parents are white, but I'm not sure why. But if, it, if, if, if I could avoid that topic, I would. So if you did ask me then, I could have said something along those lines or I could have just shut it down completely because I just wasn't still 100% sure of myself.
0: So then what, what was the moment? Explain the process of the, the unravelling of, of this story. Mm,
1: so like in the last year of uni, my dad got diagnosed with cancer. And then that's sort of when my childhood kind of ended. That was the cut off point of the story, like the protective kind of bubble that I grew up in. It was all kind of over with that diagnosis. And I remember getting it when I was in the library, like studying for my finals. And no, I remember being told at my house here in Sutton, and I came home because my dad had been in hospital with back pain and we thought it was just normal back pain but then we found out it was cancer and it had already spread to his back and it probably started in his stomach or his liver or somewhere like that and then I'd gone back to uni and all my friends had been like you know it's fine like it could be cured we don't know yet he needs to have more tests and I was like yeah yeah let's stay positive by the time I was studying for my finals i remember being in the library getting a call and my dad being like oh yeah it's not it's not gonna be cured and i remember just grabbing all my stuff like running back from this library in leamington spa locking myself in my room and just crying for hours and everyone was really worried about me but for me that was like i don't know i just there's a few moments in life where you can see things before they happen and i just knew it would be a year and i could just see his funeral and i could see me standing up and giving his eulogy i could just see it all like coming out in front of me i could just see this whole road and then I could also see this strange kind of universe where I got to the bottom of the story because I thought to myself also when he got that diagnosis, weirdly, he's not going to be around. We can't talk about our relationship or my biology or my place in the family because he's not going to be around soon. So I could see this other kind of like life ahead of me that was going to be completely different because not only would my dad not be around and he was like, you know, I was closer with him I was with my mum at the time, I'd say he just always always was there for me like there was never any sort of inkling that me being black and him being white would come between us he'd kind of like embrace me even more so because of that I would say well just like he was just a great dad he was a great dad to me and my brother but we were really close and when he got this diagnosis I was like okay that's the end of our family life as we know it and we've got a year and I probably wasted a lot of time because I was quite upset before I needed to be upset I was like not quite upset I was devastated before I needed to be devastated because he was still around yeah but if anyone has ever sort of dealt with dealt with cancer they know that like you know that last year it's not a year that you can get yourself in an order and you can kind of say your goodbyes it's like that does happen but your daily life has completely changed and it becomes a case of chemo and hospitals and watching the person that once used to carry you on their shoulders like get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker until they don't really like exist as you knew them anymore So that was what my home life became after I graduated. I
0: I was going to say, did you graduate? And this was happening directly afterwards. It was happening during your kind of, because I was going to say the stress of also being in your final year as well
1: um, Mm. on top of all of this. That was sort of all secondary though. That was like, mm, that was not, that was not even on my mind. Like you know, I did an English degree, I always liked English. Of course it sucked the joy out of it, but I knew you're gonna get two one, like, and that's that's now irrelevant anyway, because your whole life is about to change. But I think I asked for special measures or something. You know, there's all these people that ask for special measures when they have like um some extenuating a, circumstances or something, yeah. like major life events. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I did that, and that just means when they mark your work, they'll they'll be a bit more um generous yeah. with it. Yeah. But I, you know, every everyone gets two one. I knew that was gonna be the case, it was fine, and then obviously go home and I start interning and my dad was like, you know, I really want you to. Continue doing what you're doing. You want to be a writer. Keep interning. So I got all these internships. I won these like writing competitions. And like on the on the face of it, it would seem you know Georgina's getting on with her life. But my close close friends knew that everything was sort of falling apart quite quickly because you know my mum had to be his carer. My dad was at home kind of instantly because the cancer was quite advanced. Really already by the time we found it. And this was the man that done everything for us. Like he would fill up my mum's car with petrol in the morning so she would save time on her way to work. He would like sew in my hair extensions. He would pick me up from a club at 5am. I'd wake him up. Dad, can I have a lift home? I'm really drunk. Yes, I'm coming. It was like so hands on. And the love was so sort of like encompassing that just from the minute he got diagnosed, I knew that it was going to be pretty, pretty horrendous. Mm. Um, And I also knew that, that yeah, things were going to change. So I asked him when he was ill and at home, Dad, do you think that we're related
0: but did you have these questions in your mind ready, like, as soon as you, you had the diagnosis, were you like, all right, I'd kind of, there was, there needs to be a period that I explore these questions a bit further? Or were when you got trying to not just...
1: push that as an agenda? I was, yeah, I was trying not to, because obviously this, the priority is his health, mm-hmm. and everything just changes so quick, like, he's just basically paralysed, like, he was in a wheelchair within, like, a few months, like... So the priority was making sure that we can keep it together for him because he was like, I want everything to continue as normal. I want you to do your internships. I want your brother to finish uni. I want your mum to continue working. Like he just wanted all of us to be OK. So we just wanted to make sure that he was OK. And obviously things were getting worse. And then I think before they got really, really bad, I would said to my friends, do you think I should ask my dad? And they were like, you've always had questions. This is the time. So I sat him down once before things were like quite bad with his health. I think it was right like a couple of months after the diagnosis and I was at home and I said dad I really want to know you know why I'm the only black person on both sides of the family that doesn't make sense and I'm 21 now and I've just always had questions and I think maybe I should do a DNA test and by this point you know the DNA test industry had boomed like it was just taken off and it was more available I guess and more of a thing to to get a DNA test offline whereas when I was a kid that wasn't a thing I didn't really know how it worked I don't remember anyone talking about it. And suddenly at 21, it felt more more tangible. And he was just like to me, I know that you have questions and I know that you have worries, but I want you to know that you're mine. And I'm sure that you're mine. And I remember looking at him on the dining table. He was at the dining table and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm sure that you're mine. And that's all he said. And then because of that, I didn't push it because he had a few months left. And because that reassurance was enough for me in that moment. But I don't know if he meant I know that you're mine regardless because i've raised you and i love you or or yeah regardless or if he meant i know that you're mine and he believed the story that we'd all kind of taken as gospel for so many years i don't know Mm. but he was a really smart man like he had an economics degree and he always could you know help me with that homework that i wasn't able to do if it was physics if it was chemistry if it was art he was the smartest person i knew his general knowledge was top notch but did he believe that story when everyone around us was telling us it was rubbish i don't know and there's like still questions that i have about those moments and about those things that we didn't discuss, but I chose not to pursue it because he was so ill. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the right thing to do, but I also think I could have pushed it and got more more answered before he passed away. There's never really <sighs> any, any any right answers. But I've got friends that say different things. I've got a couple that are like, oh, God, thank God you didn't push it because they could see how much of a toll his illness was was on our family, like how much that our life changed so quickly. Not a toll, it was, it was never like a, a, a chore. It was just mm. like so difficult it was so hard to try and have a normal life because he wanted us to be still achieving and you know going for our goals and my mum to continue working all that he wanted that to happen more than anything but it was so hard to do that and keep it together yeah as anyone with a sick parent will know like it's just it's impossible to try and keep that all together at times keep all the plates spinning so I had said to him I'm going to try and then I said to him okay if you think that we're related like I'll just leave it at that and I didn't pursue it but I did take a DNA test sample from him with his consent. And then I took one, yeah, with his consent after that conversation, and then I just left it in my room for a year. When he passed away in 2015, I just couldn't even process it for a year, so I'd left the DNA sample in my room. And then a year later, I was interning at a magazine, and I just felt like I was so low anyway. Like you don't just get over the death of a parent in a year, like. It, Stays with you. That kind of pertinent, painful, really, really sharp, like debilitating grief will stay with you. Sometimes for like three years. For me, I'd say the worst were the first two, two and a half. And everyone expects you to be normal, and people kind of stop asking after a year. They're just like, oh yeah, that was a year ago. Like obviously they're fine now. It's not like your whole life's changed. But I managed to get this internship, and then a year later, I was still pretty low. And just remember coming home and crying all the time. And I felt like I had nothing else to lose. So I was like, right, I'm going to process this DNA test because I still haven't got the answers that me and my dad alluded to. So I. Processed it, sent it off to the company. Um, what did you think the results were going to say at that time? Like, could you
0: could you see? Like, were you ho- what were honestly, you hoping? What were you hoping? It
1: was- yeah, of course, I was hoping that like the story that we've been told was somehow miraculously true, and that I could somehow still be non-white but have white parents. I was still hoping that at twenty. 20- nearly 23 and that sounds mad to people that maybe didn't well people that haven't grown up the same way but it's just the power of that family story and the power of our love I guess as well I wanted so badly to be related to my dad but when I got the results at that internship in like April 2016 it was like the world went on pause because I had to open the email at my desk and I, it said you know zero percent match like you and your father are not a match you and the sample and not a match and that was sort of mad mm. <laughs> even at 23 and even after all the comments and all the intrigue and all the disbelief from all these new people because the silence that i'd had from my grandparents my cousins no one in my life had really challenged me that i loved none of my white family had ever said anything no one on my dad's side of the family had ever pulled me aside and said listen we know you're not our granddaughter that didn't happen like It was just kind of the odd comment growing up that became more and more frequent as i got older but in my actual life like we just did not talk about this massive massive illogical secret at the heart of our family it was not talked about so when the results came back it was still a shock and people have since said like how is it a shock it was still a shock is all i can say i can't emphasize that enough like the whole world kind of crashed to a halt with those results you were saying you were at your desk and there was this moment
0: where you would got the dna results and then all of a sudden Like, everything had just paused and
1: stopped, right? Yes. It was one of them moments, again, where it felt like the world is flashing before your eyes. Your life is flashing before your eyes. And I was like, everything I thought I knew about myself was bullshit. And it was just a lot. Like, it was a lot to take in. And... I didn't know who to speak to about it and I didn't know where to get my answers from. Cause I was like, surely my mum wouldn't have lied to me. But did my dad know about this? Did he believe that we were related? He's not here anymore. I've got these results. Who am I supposed to speak to? And then my friends were like, only person that will know the truth is your mum. So I spoke to my mum and at first she couldn't admit to me that, you know, the results must be right. It was really, really difficult between us for a while because she couldn't bring herself to let go of this narrative that we'd held on to for so long. And that put a real, real strain on our relationship for like a long time because There were weeks after the results where we just could not see. I I feel like I wasn't being heard. She was like, your dad was your dad. I'm your mom. That's all you need to know. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand what I've been through for the past 22 years carrying this narrative that does not make any sense. And I've had to defend you and defend your honor because everyone all my life has been saying, oh, your mom's fucked the postman. Like That was a running joke with some of the boys that would join onto our social groups when we were 17, 18. And I'd never had anyone talk about my family like that before. But I'd always find myself defending my mom's, you know, like fidelity, defending my mom's honor saying, no, my mum wouldn't do that. Like, we're a family and this is what I've been told and this is my dad and this is my mum. And that was constantly, constantly me like defending my parents and they didn't they didn't see that. They didn't hear that. They just probably thought we've done enough by providing our two children with the best life that we can possibly provide. But they didn't see see all the stuff that I had to kind of deal with as a result of us not talking about something that was quite obvious to a lot of people. And eventually my mum confessed that she'd had a one night stand with this guy when we lived in Shepherd's Bush before we moved to Sutton, West London girl. And was born in Shepherds Bush and I've had the first three years of my life there. And she told me after a lot of sort of persuading and getting my brother involved, because he was like, we need to talk about this. What's going on? We eventually got it out of her that, yeah, she's had an affair or a one night stand, she says, with a guy from West London. So that was another kind of moment. huge, huge, yeah, life. huge sh- shattering moment. Yeah. We were like, well, what was this guy? Who was he? Like, what am I? Where was he from? What is my identity now? Because another a batch of questions. Another batch of questions, yeah. But again, I thought that would be kind of the catalyst for the final bit of change. Like, great, she's going to tell me everything now. I'm going to find out the missing piece of the puzzle. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. It was another few weeks of screaming, shouting, me me going mad and demanding more answers and trying to persuade her to, to tell me that who I was, basically. And she was accusing me of of making things difficult of of driving a wedge between everybody and I was like listen I haven't asked for this I've been born into this situation that you and dad have chosen not to address and that you've chosen to to continue with my whole life without letting me know the missing part of the story Mm -hmm. and you don't have any idea of how that's impacted me like how dare you tell me that this is enough I'll tell you when it's enough It's been 22 years of me. No, like honestly, (laughs) I'll tell you when it's done. I've had 22 years of, it was, no, it was, it was literally like, I would say that to my uh, mum. Yeah, that's so, yeah. But you know how stubborn and, and forceful I can be when I want my own way anyway. Yeah. So so I literally said that to my mum, I was like, I'll tell you when I'm done. (laughs) And you know, like after, after so long of your child believing something you've told them. Yeah. And not challenging you and you basically getting away with, with, with something that wasn't true it was a shock to the system a year after my dad's died for me to sit there and suddenly have all these expectations of her have all these questions like something that she buried for her whole life and i wouldn't let it go like how could i let it go after i knew that mm-hmm. how could i just put it to bed i had to tell everyone i had to ring up my family and be like are you aware that dad wasn't my biological dad and everyone had a different opinion My grandparents, his parents would say, my granny said one thing. She said, oh, I always thought that you were his and I just believed the story. And then my grandpa said, I never believed it. I always thought that you couldn't be your dad's it's impossible and then my cousin who I'm really close with on my dad's side was like oh I always wondered why you were black but you know we never spoke about it and we were told not to speak about it and I just so it became this collective yeah Yeah. it was I felt like I'd uncovered a conspiracy and I was so angry with everyone around me even though it wasn't their fault it wasn't their place but I was like if it's not your child if it's not your grandparents place to ask their child why have you brought home a baby of a different race whose place is it because it wasn't my place at five years old (laughs) so I was fuming that nobody had helped me uncover the truth and nobody had asked me oh god what's that like for you dealing with this huge story on your own at 10 years old no one had ever checked in with me so I'm, i was so apoplectic with rage mm. like confounded with the fact that my mom wouldn't tell me anymore and that everyone around me once i told them my family in ireland as well was just like oh okay yeah we always wondered I was like is that it like is that all you've all got to say like why has no one challenged my mum yeah why has she come from Ireland and no one's challenged her and I couldn't I couldn't get my head around it I I felt so angry at everyone I was angry at my dad dying before we'd spoken about this I was angry at my mum for starting this story off and not helping me with it and I was angry at like all my relatives for not (laughs) not giving me the tools to unpack it earlier yeah so then I left the UK left London at the end of this internship and was like right I have to get some space I have to clear my head I have to get some peace of mind <laughs> yeah
0: no because that was that was that was partly going to be the next question I was going to ask mm. you I was going to ask you like um, obviously, ever since I've known you, like, travelling was always a, a major agenda and a, a major um, sort of a thing for you to do. Like, you, you, you were obsessed with the idea of being somewhere else. Um, and was, was that linked to you kind of wanting to remove yourself from home or remove yourself from the UK and everything that you knew? Mm, it's really
1: funny that you were obsessed with being somewhere else. I think that was literally... Me for a long time, really up until I'd say last year, I was obsessed with being on the move and yeah, being somewhere else. And I think not having a sense of place, a solid sense of place in my life growing up definitely contributed to me wanting to be in different places around the world to see if I would fit in better somewhere else. And I only realized that once I got all this news and I got the DNA test results back, I was like, gosh, this is my life. But really, there could have been another life for me in a parallel universe somewhere else that was meant to be mine. And I wouldn't swap my upbringing for anything else. I miss my dad. My parents have given me everything. But there is a part of me that's gone undiscovered or remained undiscovered for so long. And it's time for me to access that. And I didn't really know how to do it. But I knew I needed to get some space and I wanted to be around other people that look like me and do all the things that I missed out on growing up because I was carrying this story and I was unable to access a large part of my cultural identity um do you think tra- I mean,
0: traveling gave you control over your narrative as well and yeah definitely. People, well, where you where, you, you could be anything when you arrive in brazil you could be exactly. anyone um when you arrive in galapagos like i don't know it could be anything exactly mm.
1: um there's a real power with being a solo traveler because you do really have the the tools to reinvent yourself every time you touch down You can create your own story. You can decide what you want to do on what given day. You can decide what you tell people about yourself. And I definitely reveled in that for a while. But in a way, I was also running away because I couldn't I couldn't um, bring myself to be at home and just kind of sit in this stagnant environment with my mum where we couldn't talk about race. We couldn't talk about 22 years of, of pain that had been caused by this this lie so when i was abroad i didn't have to deal with any of that when you were in these places what was your relationship like with your peace of mind <sighs> it definitely put the pain on pause so i had a lot of really incredible experiences like i lived in new york for six months then i went to nicaragua and then i went to dominican republic went to cuba and i came back went to the galapagos islands <laughs> and went to south africa went on these press strips and i started to sort of like start a blog and write about traveling and write about identity and it was really freeing to kind of write and writing is giving me peace of mind and it still does like it it's a way to express yourself and it's something that i do nearly every day and if i don't do it for a few days i feel i feel kind of crowded my mind feels crowded like i don't feel at peace so i was doing a lot of writing and a lot of traveling and that to me was 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 enabling a really incredible state of mind that i'd never accessed before because i felt free. And I felt like, yeah, I can live my truth now. And I'm writing about these things. And I started writing about my upbringing. And a lot of people that knew me years ago would contact me and say, God, I've just read your story. I've just read that you're trying to uncover your identity. And I'm really sorry for calling you this name 10 years ago when we were like 12. And I was like, it's fine. Like, we were all kids. And, you know, you just react to stories the way that, you know, you're you're brought up to react to them. So I was getting a lot of... um, a lot of like positive reaction from people who I hadn't spoken to for ages, which was nice just from writing about all this really strange stuff that had happened to me. And then also being in all these new places and being in black majority countries was, was really freeing. Like I was surrounded by people that looked like me for the first time and I was getting my hair done for the first time and getting it done like properly getting braids done. Um, and that's not to say that like, you know, you have to tick off all these kind of arbitrary um, limited things In order to create a black identity, that's not what I'm trying to say. It was just more that I was playing kind of cultural catch up and I was really enjoying it because I was on the other side of the world. And it was a great experience for me for like a year and a half living and working in all these places. But I knew that I'd have to come back home eventually and repair the relationship with my mum and do the work on myself and do the permanent work on my state of mind to become the person I wanted to become. Because when I did come back to London in like 2017, the grief and the the trauma hit me really, really quick because I hadn't had time to process what happened before I'd left London. So I'd got these DNA test results. Me and my mum had been at loggerheads and I'd left within like, you know, three weeks, four weeks. And we'd never really got to process any of it. And then by the time I came back, it all really, really hit me. I started therapy with a therapist in south london a black therapist black female therapist and i was like god i think i'm depressed because i can't function at the minute and she was like it could be a lot of delayed delayed grief and delayed trauma because you left the uk so quickly you've never really had time to talk about all these things i was a little bit paranoid i think when i came back to london having suddenly accessed all this truth about my identity that people would suddenly expect me to know all these things because now i could happily walk around and say yes i am a black woman i'm a mixed race woman in a way that i never did When I was 18, 19, I could happily walk around and claim it. But I was then worried that like other people would expect me to have all these answers that obviously you don't get from a DNA test. You don't get um, any sort of cultural understanding that comes through osmosis. That comes from growing up with with people who are racial mirrors, people who look Mm -hmm. like you, who. Who show you, you know, where your grandparents come from or whatever? I didn't have any of that. I just had knowledge that meant that, of course, I could claim my blackness in a way that I never had before. But I didn't have this kind of like basically all the stuff that everyone else around me who was of a minority background seemed to have.
0: And not to take away from anything at all, um, all, all your your whole experience, um allowed you to kind of channel that into some of the amazing pieces that you were writing for some of the big publications like Guardian um, like The Independent um, to, mm. to name a few Um and also kind of gave the world a chance to see how much of a potent writer you are. Um, Aww, no, 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 potent. Potent. I <laughs> had uh, to throw that in. You, you're you a wizard with a pen and obviously oh, you were working, you're working in the, in, in the team that was creating and writing a lot of content um, on, at, at the job that we'd both worked within. Um, mm-hmm. But, That this actually led you on to gain some other opportunities, right? So you were talking about it allowed you to go travel the world, but it also allowed you recently to secure yourself a book deal, right?
1: Mm. Yeah. So I'd started to develop this kind of black consciousness and pitch articles that I wanted to write about in 2015 guys the tide had not turned but it was just about to turn so all my article ideas about like you know like black feminism and all these topics that white magazines didn't really want to look at they were getting rejected but just a year later Mm. galdem had formed we had black ballads coming back we had like all these black films being made we had all these people getting book deals and it was just a fantastic coincidence that At the dawn of of my life falling to pieces, the world started to listen to the stories of marginalized people of color. So when I started writing in The Guardian about my upbringing, it just took off. Like the first piece I ever wrote about how I was raised went viral, got like, I don't know, like 20,000 shares or something. And I'd never written anything that had taken off like that before. And I never exposed myself online like that before either. But the reaction was so positive that, um, yeah, they asked me to be a columnist. And that lasted about six months. I then got contacted by a couple of agents and they were like, we really think you should write a memoir. You should really write a book. And even still, I knew that I was good, but I still couldn't believe that like someone would want to give me a book deal. I was talking about it, but I was like, oh my God, now it's real. Like People want to represent me and they want me to write a manuscript or write a proposal, sorry. It was a weird time, but I was was developing, I'd obviously got my confidence. I'd obviously developed confidence in myself and I was getting positive affirmation from people out in the world that my story was interesting and that other people could could see themselves in it, most importantly, because I wanted to broaden it out to other people who, who, you know, reached out to me and spilled their whole life story to me on email. There was many, many people that said the same thing has happened to me. And that might sound really, like, surreal, but it was surreal for me to see people saying, my mum also told me I was white and I look the same as you. And these were men, these were grown men. And it would be a guy who's, grown up the exact same as me but he's in his 40s and he's also mixed race but no one spoke about his identity because his mother had an affair and it just was not the done thing to speak about um speak about that at the time and i was like god that happened what 20 years before i was born but it's the same experience spoke to somebody else who was raised as the only mixed race person in his family and then he developed a skin condition vitiligo and he changed races over the course of like 10 years so he did look mixed race and then suddenly Overnight, he developed it to LIGO and it completely changed skin colours. And now he presents and looks like a white man. And I was having all these conversations all these people, and I was like, this needs to go into the book as well, because there's so much to say, not just about kind of like mixed race identity, but about the weight of family secrets and about the way in which stories like my own and stories like, you know, the genetic throwback story, which was told to other people too, that's kind of a way to, um, disguise a social ill and what is it about kind of black children born into white families in certain scenarios that provokes this kind of desire within some people to kind of make up a story rather than just admit the actual truth which is oh this child is black there's a lot of like weighted baggage that comes with being you know the only person of color in a white family and that is what i wanted to to bring to the table with with the book i've i've just finished writing yes yes
0: (laughs) called raceless when will it be available where is it where is it that we can, people can find it and tell us a bit about that quickly
1: well it's all kind of gone a bit mad because of covid so i'm thinking it's going to be coming out 2021 now it was initially due out for release um end of 2020 but at the minute we're looking at 2021 and at the minute it's going to be on amazon it's going to be on waterstones it's going to be in all good bookstores oh man <laughs> listen I I just
0: I just wanted to give you just major props again like that is an amazing feat no 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 it's real it is (laughs) real um so could could you just tell us quickly like your your social handles and where people can find you if they wanted to kind of tap into a little bit more and follow your journey
1: so yeah my twitter is georgina lawton and then my instagram is georgina lawton underscore so I went on BBC Radio 4 to talk about my story at some point. I think they read one of my Guardian articles, one of my columns, and then I went on to speak about pretty much what I've just spoken about today and identity and the relationship with my dad. And it went really well. And I got in contact, or a producer got in contact with me afterwards and said, This is a really interesting story. Are you interested in making a podcast about anything, identity, race, DNA tests? Do you want to, you know, picture some ideas? But what? has come to fruition is a podcast focusing on the DNA testing industries. And yeah, it's been a really interesting project to work on. It's been really personal. And it's been another project that's connected me with a lot of people around the world with with similar stories. And it's also helped me try and find out a little bit more about my my biological, I guess, father. I hate using the term father, but you know, the guy that is responsible for half of my genetic makeup <laughs> is still out there somewhere. <laughs> and, and you know, writing about it in my book has, has been really therapeutic, but doing The DNA test um, podcast has actually helped me kind of find out a little bit more about who I am. The name is it is The Secrets in Us. So it will be five episodes and it will be available to download on Audible, hopefully at some point in 2020, if not afterwards. You
0: didn't mention quickly what what the DNA results, where they said that you could potentially be
1: from. Okay, so there was so much going on when I was travelling. I got the results back when I was in Nicaragua. And long story short, I found out that I was Nigerian, like nearly 50 50 split. Like whoever my mum had been with, that we don't really know much of, he was Nigerian and she's Irish. So it just gave me a 50 50 split. And after years of not knowing, I was like, oh, that's it. Like, that's it. Nigeria. Okay. Like it was kind of strange to know that.
0: <laughs> where do we go from here? Do we catch Yeah, where do to I Lagos? go? Literally. <laughs> George, I want to. I want to ask you three questions finally before we wrap it up. First question: happiest day of your life.
1: God, actually, one day that keeps springing to mind is when I was in New York and I first left home. I was so down, but my two best friends came out to visit me, and I'd been in Brooklyn for a few months. And we just did it all. Like it was me and my two best friends. We took we took New York and we lived it up. I took them to Coney Island. We went shopping in Soho. And then we went out to this club called Le Bain. And I remember we were all dressed up. We looked amazing. We were like 23. And we had our makeup done, our hair done. And we walked to the club in Manhattan. It's this huge club. And it's got a massive pool at the top. And we just got let straight to the front. We had cocktails on the top of the rooftop with all these like random people and on the way home we got like these amazing donuts and i remember my best friend saying this is one of the best days of my life and i said to her, this is one of the best days of my life too Aww. and it was because i had so much love around me i just remember them coming to visit me made me feel so much less alone at that time in my life so i'm gonna say that was nice. one of the best days of my life nice
0: <laughs> nice um question number two something that
1: overwhelms you um i always feel overwhelmed at the start of any big writing project like the start of writing a book the start of writing an article i feel overwhelmed and nervous but then at the end i always feel happy so i would say <laughs> writing <laughs>
0: yes, my career <laughs> your career your career and final question uh best piece of advice you've be, you've been given by somebody else
1: um, when my dad was ill, he said to me once when I was really stressed after I came back from this internship, that I didn't like, he was like to me, I oh, don't get stressed with work, doll, because, you know, you're going to spend most of your life there. You need to find something that you love and then it will never feel like you're really working and you need to pick something that will make you happy because you're going to spend so much time there. Um, so I'd probably say that is a piece of advice that I've tried to hold. I definitely think the future's bright. You've got some amazing
0: projects like Raceless. You're about to release your first book. Are you mad? you're about to release a podcast are you mad like it's all very dope it's all very dope (laughs) so give yourself like your drive determination (laughs) has brought you here so well done um and yeah i I look forward to seeing your journey um, unfold
1: thank you ray like it's been an honor to speak to you on
0: that note um guys peace out peace out